welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it was lovely to catch up with you uh, just now. We were kind of talking about a lot of uh, topics that I think we're going to cover today. And, you know, we want to learn more about you, but um, tell us a bit more about about you, Matt. Um, yes, it was lovely to catch up and I'm excited to see you next week in Chicago. It's, yeah. It feels you know, after the last three years, strange to be able to say that, but um, I'm excited for that. Uh, so I am a Brit living in America. So I live in um, northern New Jersey with my wife, Alicia, and my two kids, Madeline and Jamie. Um, I kind of found my way here. I did an internship in uh, the financial industry in 2007, which is when I met Alicia, mm. and then traveled around the world, um, worked in London, worked in Hong Kong for a few years. And then when we decided it was time to, to settle down and start a family, we moved back to the area that we now live in, um, which was actually the area that Alicia was raised in and I always love to think that we lived and worked in London in Hong Kong but my wife was born in the same hospital that my two kids were born in so we truly she went full circle and, and this yeah. is very much <laughs> home. um and yeah so it's been it's been home since 2015 and it will be home for the foreseeable future that's for sure yes yes and Jamie paid us a visit this morning <laughs> no <laughs> promises you might back again so we'll see <laughs> the cutest little boy he was uh looking looking for daddy to play and uh was able to close the door on his own i mean he's just he, you've got it down <laughs> yeah, well trained for a three-year-old yes yes <laughs> and tell us a little bit more about uh you know what you do so you know your your day job but also the impact that you personally are looking to make on the world yeah, so so those those two are very closely aligned. I think I, I'm incredibly fortunate to um, lead a company called Unmind in North America, and we are a company that is intent on driving cultural change as it relates to mental health in the workplace. And we ultimately have our purpose is to create a world where mental health is universally understood, nurtured, and celebrated. Um, and it's kind of the more I talk, the more obvious it becomes why somebody would want to be a part of that and, and therefore what leads into their own personal mission. But my journey to Unmind, um, I, I, it wasn't to get into the mental health space. It wasn't something clinical or academic. It was genuinely because I worked for a company that had an incredible culture. And I worked for that company for 12 years. And I know that for folks of my generation, it's unusual to work for a company for 12 years. And there were a number of reasons why I did that. I had um, incredible growth opportunities. I worked for incredible managers. I had wonderful colleagues. Um, and the largest part was the culture of well-being that created for me a level of psychological safety that I want to now pay it forward in, in what Unmind does. And that culture of well-being, it, it started with the physical well-being aspects. In 2008, it was things like gym subsidies and um, what you should be eating and, you know, uh, tax-free bikes and things like that and the well-being program evolved to include financial well-being and then it was November of 2018 that they launched the mental well-being pillar and it fundamentally impacted and changed my life in so many different ways um primarily it on a personal level that 
I I grew up in a in a blue collar area in the UK in the northwest, and you didn't talk about mental health. You didn't have mental health. You just sucked it up and you got on with it. And I was surrounded by an incredibly loving family and network, and I, I wanted for nothing but in terms of understanding what mental health truly is and how you measure it and how you nurture it, we didn't get that. And I, in November of 2018, was surrounded by first world pressures. So Jamie, who we talked about before, had just arrived two months early. So we're spending a bit of time in the NICU. Um, Madeline, my daughter, had just turned two. So I was adjusting to becoming a parent and, and fatherhood. And I always joke now that whenever you ask someone, do you want kids? The answers, you know, a majority of people, if they want kids will very quickly say yes. But the question you should ask is, do you want your life to change forever and never go back to the way that you've been used to for the past 30 years? Mm. Because that's a life change that you need to be prepared for and that you need to continually work on afterwards. And what I realize is I'm still working on that and and I adore my kids, but that transition to being a parent was a really, really difficult one. And, and at that point as well, the company that I worked for had been acquired by a much larger company. So there was a lot of work pressure as well. So balancing that, that life change of becoming a parent and worrying about Jamie in the NICU and then work pressures for the first time ever, which I know is ridiculously lucky to say, I've started to feel these mental health pressures. And I don't know if I believe in fate, but I think things probably do happen for a reason. And at that time in November of 2018, part of the mental well-being pillar that was launched to us included access to Unmind. And at that point, um, I leveraged the platform to to kind of provide myself with an education into what mental health was. And I realized that we always need to measure it, nurture it, because we all have it all of the time. So I took practical guidance from the platform, but I ultimately fell in love with the value proposition of what Unmind does. Now, for the sake of, of keeping this brief, there, there was a, a 16 month period where I did absolutely everything I could to join this company. And I was incredibly fortunate that when we started our global expansion, that the US and Australia were the first two countries and based on the relationship that I'd built and effectively pestering um, Dr. Nick Taylor, our CEO and co-founder, um, I, I had the option or the opportunity to join Unmind and start our US operations. So suffice to say, I feel incredibly fortunate career-wise that, that I get to live and breathe this every single day and, and attempt to pay it forward. And um, to the second part of your question in terms of what my, my personal mission and what I want to achieve would be, I never really thought about it until I joined Unmind. And if I'm being honest, I probably don't have an eloquent answer to that question, but in, in my journey to Unmind and better understanding mental health and well-being and I call it my epiphany. I, I don't know if it's an epiphany or a zeitgeist moment in terms of understanding mental health and that we have it and we need it to, to nurture it, sorry. I right now think that your your purpose and your mission likely changes as your life evolves. And with a six-year-old and a three-year-old, it's difficult for me to see my purpose or mission going beyond them and raising them and caring for them and looking after them. and helping them make the right choices or the choices that they will make to become productive and compassionate members of society. Um, so I think that you know, if you boil it down as my primary responsibility, I think I'm incredibly fortunate to work for a company 
that looks to measurably improve the mental well-being of the work of people in the workplace as well so i can i can map those two passions together because i feel that they're very worthy passions and, and purposes oh i love that and they're very much connected and that's where i kind of want to take our conversation next because i think a lot of the work that that we're doing right now is around the correction and the nurturing of mental health today, right? Like we're we're trying to create an environment within the workplace that enforces, reinforces, uh, you know, provides the tools, but also the system so people can be well. But there's also like a, a conversation to be had about how we got here. Um, so I would love to hear from you, what is the, tell us the landscape of mental health at work today. What are the, what are the highlights? Like what's happening? Because I think people are hearing a lot of different information. If you could just distill it down to us, um, what's the call to action and what's happening and what's the call to action today? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll try my best to distill it down into, into bite-sized pieces. I think, um, there's a few statements I'll make up front that, that fundamentally as a society, culturally speaking, and as a workplace, we have so many failings in how we've talked about mental health um, in terms of stigmatizing the topic and lack of education and understanding in, into what it is. And that's for decades, if not hundreds of years prior to today. What we've seen over the past three years is a level of focus on mental health that we've never seen before. And it's a shame that it was brought on by a global pandemic, but it's highlighted that there is a global epidemic when it comes to mental health. We've seen some wonderfully positive elements of that, like sports stars, athletes, corporations, brands using their platform to open up and talk about mental health, to continue this destigmatization of the topic, to leverage lived experience, to talk about how they've gone through mental health challenges in life. Um, and that's opened up the conversation and that was a really important step. And once you've opened up that conversation, we've seen that the number of workplaces that are looking to invest in mental health solutions has increased dramatically. I think there was a statistic recently I read, I believe it was, and if I'm allowed to name drop companies, but um, Aon to a large global health consulting firm, found that 96% of organizations plan to maintain their level of investment into mental health resources beyond this year, hmm. which I think is wonderful because that means they've increased them up until this point and they're gonna maintain it because they recognize the importance of it. A lot of that focus in mental health resources has gone on the reactive space. Hmm. So if, if you take the US as an example, there is a huge deficit of therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and those that can treat clinical mental health challenges. And what that creates is it's very difficult for individuals to find affordable um, therapy or treatment uh, in, a, in a reasonable period of time. And there are wonderful companies out there in the corporate mental health care space that are using technology to solve that challenge, to, to use technology to connect you to a therapist wherever they may be at a reasonable cost within a reasonable period of time. And if you look back over the past two years, there's been a phenomenal amount of investment into that. There's also been a lot of investment into point solutions to help people manage their own mental well-being. Mm -hmm. So think about all your mindfulness tools, resilience tools, and, and employees have been throwing them at employees and saying, help yourself, fix yourself, measure yourself, recover yourself, make yourself more resilient. 
But what we've seen is all of a sudden employees have said, huh, hold on, there's a lot of yourself right here. I'm not by myself. Like, why are you saying this is all on me? I come to work for between 45, 55, 65, 75 hours a week. Like, what are you doing to create a culture or an environment in which I can flourish, in which I can truly address my mental health, look after my mental health, wherever I am on that on that mental health spectrum of mm-hmm. um, no mental illness to mental illness to high positive mental well-being to low positive mental well-being. And that's the biggest shift in terms of what the state of the, the landscape is now, because if you go on LinkedIn or any of the other HR press, you will see continued articles about burnout. You can see increased levels of stress, depression, anxiety, and mental health challenges. So the landscape right now is a call to action for organizations to not just focus on supporting the individual, but focus on driving cultural change throughout an organization that can create an environment that is psychologically safe, that is mentally healthy. And that requires all layers of an organization to step up from senior leadership to set the tone and lead by example, to the creation of compassionate, empathetic managers, not managers who are therapists, it's compassionate managers. There was another study by Gallup on name drop that showed the biggest impact on engagement is well-being. And the single biggest impact on your well-being as an employee is your manager. Mm-hmm. And then the final point, which I think is amazing, the biggest impact you can have on a manager for the well-being of your employee is to have one meaningful conversation with them a week. That's how you can move the needle on how an employee feels. It is free to have one meaningful conversation a week. All you need to do is better educate managers to be compassionate, better listeners, more supportive, which are life skills, which are soft skills. And that's the call to action. There's also the mobilization of champions within the workforce. And then the final layer is that supporting the individual. So where we are right now, foundationally speaking, the tools exist but we need to work throughout the other layers of the organization to create that cultural shift that can create environments that we can flourish, that we feel supported. Yes, I, I love what you're saying. And I, there's a few points I wanna reiterate and maybe add my own thoughts to, which is you bring up the point that uh, you know leadership role modeling is really important. Mm-hmm. And I cannot stress that enough. You know, Being someone who is working in the culture space, right? A lot of a lot of people reach out to me with symptoms, <laughs> which you know, being a consultant, typically it's high turnover. You know, we need a we need a well we need to do better with wellness. We need to do better with DE and I, and it. I think there's a huge gap in acknowledgement and understanding around the impact you just mentioned, mm-hmm. which is that direct manager, that direct leader, has a responsibility. And I don't think leaders see themselves as responsible uh, within the workplace to say, I am, I am nurturing, nourishing, building, coaching, developing this team of human beings that actually live outside of this container, <laughs> right? Like, I think sometimes we think about just work as like, work happens here. And I forget, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the show Severance, um, but yeah. it's... Yeah. So, but it's this idea of like, I just, I, sh- you know, I'm this person here and I'm that person there. But if you're a leader, you are impacting individuals and human beings who are going to take that outside of the container into their, their family unit, this, their society, the society, communities. 
So I think there's a there's a lack of acknowledgement of responsibility. And I think we have a whole other system to fix, which is around building better leaders, more compassionate leaders, and holding them accountable to that. Uh, there's too many workplaces that I think are employing leaders who are just technical experts who have made it through the ranks and have made the, the company money uh, or, you know, are maybe didn't want to be a leader, but that person only saw that as the career path to make more money and to get a bigger title. That just yeah. can't, I, 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 that's the responsibility piece where I, culturally I think we need to change the narrative on that and have fewer leaders even. Like let's have fewer, better leaders. I mean, we want to build better, more leaders, but I think there's some people who just don't want to lead and that's okay, but let's make sure they're not holding that responsibility for other people and other humans. And the other thing um, is I think there's a lot of organizations right now who are trying to add things on, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the wellness program, like let's, let's have workshops, let's create, you know, let's create an app, you know, let's put it on the person, right, to attend these workshops. When in reality, it's, it's just about fixing your, your business practices for the most part or making them more compassionate and conscious. Um, a lot of organizations that I work with are looking to me to give them recommendations on what kind of additional programs they should add, right? Like, well, what kind of workshops can we do? What kind of guest speakers can we have? And it's like, no, actually, the root cause is your leadership. And your leadership is pinging people in, on teams at 11 o'clock at night. We have to look at our behaviors, our day-to-day -day behaviors, and are they matching with the values that we've proclaimed? If wellness is a value, we need to match our behaviors. And it seems so simple, but I think organizations are reacting to the trendy stuff, the perks, uh, which drives me a little bonkers sometimes. <laughs> I love I love everything you've just said, and I was I was scribbling notes to try and make sure I remember to to pick up on a few of them. I think I agree with you, like the trendy perks. So you'll see dog friendly offices, you'll see ping pong tables, you'll see free kombucha on tap, or whatever it may be. I, I think I honestly think that that the progressive organisations are, are wising up to that's not going to cut it anymore. And I, just to echo the compassionate leaders point, I, I think as a leader, your responsibility is the welfare of the people within your team. Yes. But that doesn't solely sit with picking them up when they've fallen over mm. or catching them just before they fall. It's about supporting them through when they're flourishing to when they're just surviving. And one thing you said that's so true, it's about modeling the right behaviors. And I, um, follow so my leader is, is Dr. Nick and, and he's our CEO and Dr. Nick will have times in his calendar that you know you cannot touch. And I, and I might be calling him out here, but two of them are tennis. And the other one is kids' bedtime and bath time. And we know no matter what we are, and we're a high growth technology company that's venture capital backed, you don't touch Nick at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's modeling the behavior that says, this is my, this is my, my, um, my boundary. boundary. And, we don't yeah. that. and then for me, I kind of try and model that within my team that says I was off for, um, five days of the week and I made it a point not to go on Slack and not to go on email once, because if they don't see me nor hear from me, then they know that I take vacation seriously and therefore they can feel safe yeah. and psychologically safe to take vacation seriously. I don't, we don't want them anywhere near their laptops or their phones at that point. So it's the modeling behaviors so key and where i think it comes into is is sustainability 
And ESG, so environmental, social and governance is something that so many organizations are talking about right now. And the golden thread through that is the well-being of your people. Because if you want to create sustainability in your business, you need compassionate leaders that don't just look for growth at all costs, because growth at all costs leads to burnout. It leads to low productivity, it leads to stress, to, to anxiety, to depression. If you have compassionate leaders that look to sustainably grow, you have to have a strategic well-being pillar throughout your organization to understand how you support your main um, asset, which is your people. Yeah. And it all comes back to culture. I mean, this is, you know, mm. I, I think sometimes we over engineer with different programs like wellness program, DEI program. Yeah. I think we have to really connect it back to culture and the strategic makeup of the organization. And so to your point, uh, ensure that all of your leaders are having a compassionate, conscious uh, developmental conversation with their employees once a week. That's a norm. That's a behavior that we can, um, we can codify into the DNA of the, of the organization through systems, through reinforcement, through, you know, making sure that the leaders who like don't want to do that, like, well, I have a job to do. It's like, well, that's not leadership here. So I think it comes down to behaviors and I would love to talk a little bit about burnout too, because I think that's just a term that we've, you know, we, we like our buzz buzzwords, right? <laughs> they, they start to, they, they, at least they tell a story, a narrative about what's happening. But I think about, for example, like the healthcare industry. Yeah. And we have, um, you know, there's a dwindling pipeline of MAs, for example, there's a dwindling pipeline of doctors who want to step into leadership positions because they're like, I, I have so many patients to see, I can't even think about being in a leadership role. So, and then I think about their journey to healthcare, like a doctor, an MD, and the, the system of education to get there. I mean, you just watch like, you know, Grey's Anatomy and you just see them like sleeping on cots and not getting sleep and they're stressed out all the time. So how do we, how do we bring it back to the full uh what's the word i'm looking for kind of the where it starts because i think we're not really role modeling uh these behaviors within workplaces even in healthcare you know even in healthcare where it's everyone's burnt out so what's the root cause where does it start and how do we from a systems perspective outside of the workplace make sure that we prevent it once it gets to the workplace I mean, if we had the answer to that, we'd be, in, we'd be in different roles and we'd be highly successful. I think um, healthcare is is a, is a vertical that we focus greatly on. I think for many reasons that um, we should care for our carers and we have, and we are in such debt to folks in healthcare, particularly over the last three years. My sister is a frontline nurse in the NHS in the UK and my sister-in-law over here is a physician's assistant in, in a large um, healthcare system. And I see firsthand the pressures that they're under. I think in that specific example, there are deep-seated cultural, structural and systemic changes or, or um, inadequacies that need to change. And I think that in the healthcare organizations that we talk to, they're going through that transition that I mentioned before about looking at how to support the individual, how to create 
cultures where people feel they can care for their own mental health because there's an irony in healthcare that if you if you raise concern about your mental health that depending on the roles that you currently have it might be that you're deemed unfit to continue on with that particular mm. role and that shouldn't be the case because you could be a highly there's a bit there's a big difference between a mental illness and low positive mental well-being there are people that manage mental illness day in day out but have a very high positive mental well-being if you think of it as a dual continuum mm. and they are incredibly productive people within the workforce and within society but what they are um, happens to them is they are in that stigmatized group that are are frowned upon because it's a misunderstood and it's it's that lack of education and i think healthcare is is a is a is one example of that. There are many different industries that present different stresses. But to your point about how do we fix it, I think the structural and systemic changes that need to happen to ensure the right foundations are in place for people to thrive. And and that's a whole collection of things that would take another 45 hours for us to discuss. But one thing that I am incredibly passionate about is, I mentioned before that all layers of the organization are responsible for creating the right culture. Mm. But I think that I also mentioned that there's a societal and cultural failing in how we approach mental health before we even get to the workforce. And we should be inputting into curriculums from the ages of three, four, five up, mental health and well-being curriculums. And I've seen them in here, there and everywhere. I know it's difficult to amend the curriculum in public schooling systems, but this, this isn't a workplace benefit mental health. It's a human right. Yes. And, and kids have human rights when it comes to mental health. And if we can better prepare kids to have a greater understanding of mental health and well-being and how to measure it, how to spot it, how to support others, then I think we're setting people up to come into the workplace to have an unwavering expectation that you're going to support my mental health. Because if you think about the analogy we always use is that you don't go to bed on a Monday feeling absolutely fine and wake up on a Tuesday with a clinical depression. Hmm. You collect symptoms over a period of time. Imagine if we were educating our children to understand what those symptoms were so that they could track them and they could speak up. Or their best friend who's nine years old says, "You, I've noticed this and this about so-and-so, and therefore that person gets the help they need at the right point in time. It's, it's about prevention, it's about proactive, it's destigmatizing, it's education. Like, I think that's where we can create real change that will then filter in through the generations that then enter the workforce, as well as continuing to focus on, on the workplace, of course. Yeah, you bring up a great point. It does start at the very beginning. And, you know, if I just think about when mental health became like a reality in my orbits, mm -hmm. probably wasn't until I was in my 20s and getting my graduate degree in org psych and studying psychology uh, so I had to literally get a, gr a graduate degree to start to realize that I, you know, like mental health was a thing and it's actually something we have to focus on. And, you know, we go to the doctor um, when something hurts, but, or, we're, you know, we have preventative things that we check on, but we, you know, I wasn't checking in on my mental health and I mm. still struggle with it, to be honest. You know, I go to therapy, I do all the things that I need to do, but it's like, it's, it's, it's a learned muscle that's taken me in, well into my 30s to now start to flex. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like we're talking about the educational system. We're talking about the workplace as a system. We're talking about healthcare as a system. 
I mean, I think we've just solved the world's problems in this podcast. <laughs> I think we're ready. Uh, yeah. let's, uh, let's call the president and make some things happen. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think this is, you know, this gets back to, I just want to reiterate the, the fact that this is multi-generational. It's compounded. It's systemic. It's systematic. It's not about the perks. It's not about the rea reactionary uh, programs or initiatives that you launch a campaign, you know, via an email in an organization. Uh, and it's it's definitely not the the yoga classes <laughs> and and all those things are nice, right? I think that's the other thing, which is you know, I was recently asked to comment on the idea of like perks in the workplace and. And this kind of threw me off, but one of the there was a survey that came out that asked, "Would you, would you take advantage of hangover leave as a perk?" And it was just like, okay, so we're talking about wellness at work, and we're, <laughs> but we're reinforcing alcohol, and then we're not even getting to the root cause of the the problem, which is why we would be. It's it, it, we really have to do some internal reflection i think because i think companies are throwing things at the wall and be like let's see what sticks let's see what makes the people happy here's the thing like just talk to your people listen to your people i think um health equity starts with understanding what people need and all the differences in what they need and then providing some systematic changes and maybe perks maybe perks yeah but it has to start with that that conversation that that leader is having. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, and hangover leave, that's wild, by the way. Um, the, there is a place for perks for sure. Um, but perks on top of a toxic culture are just yes. putting band-aids over something that's going to fail anyway. And I think it was Desmond Tutu that said it, at some point you need to stop pulling people out of the water and well, as well as pulling people out of the water and saving them, you need to go further upstream and understand why they're jumping in in the first place. And, and that is to your point, let's have a conversation with people about what they really want and what they understand. And I think another big trend that we've seen in the state of, of mental health and in the workplace is that closing that loop on actually understanding what people want. And, yeah. you know, for so long, companies have, have done engagement surveys with hundreds of questions, and one of them has been about well-being. My company cares about my well-being. Agree? Right right and there's like oh we got like neutral cool let's move on no that <laughs> one... have... right and it's like okay we have a well-being problem okay now what like there's you know a little emoji person like this um i'm doing the little emoji hands up shrug uh it's it's it is wild and i do think employee engagement is part of the problem like that whole movement around employee engagement i mean i you know, I worked in corporate for a long time. I, I've run many uh, an engagement survey and analyzed them and, you know, done analysis on them and, and all that. But at the end of the day, I think I think it's I don't think it's measuring the right things. I think we should really be focused on employee and human experience versus how like loyal and how much you're going to go 150 percent for the company, which I think is a problematic behavior in and of itself. Oh, so you've hit on one of my, my biggest realizations and we work with a number of professional services companies and they said, Matt, one of the biggest challenges is we reward people for burnout. Yes. 
if you hit 110% of your billable hours, you get a bonus. It, 110% shouldn't exist. That, that's that's right. rewarding going above, beyond, and burnout. It's and this this firm recognised that and like oh, that's not good. We need to move away from that, which is wonderful. But just to pick up on another really important point, measurement. Measurement is so key, and we shouldn't just be measuring on a scale of one to ten. My company cares about my well-being. We should be measuring the workplace contributors to what impacts my well-being at work. So this is everything from trust in leadership, psychological safety, flexibility and autonomy, supportiveness, workload. These are the questions we should be asking and measuring for. And then from that, we understand the levers that we can pull as a workplace to improve those metrics. Because if you improve them, you will improve the overall culture and well-being of, of that organization. Yes. Oh my gosh, this could be a whole nother podcast episode because I have so many thoughts. Um, especially because we're hearing about quiet quitting and all all of these buzzwords that I think just get back to the issue in the first place, which is there is this traditional uh, traditional expectation and norm within organizations that people need to do 110% of their job. Mm-hmm. And and we have to we have to connect that back to mental health and wellness of people um and and this this idea that we have to get the most we got to squeeze the most out of people that is problematic mm-hmm. and I, it's a contributor to your point it's impacting people's mental health so that could be a whole nother podcast episode but i will cl- i will close the loop i will tie the bow um with one more question which is and i really want us to get to things we can do like if someone's listening to this podcast and they're inspired and they're loving everything we're saying um like your your average leader your middle man manager who is perhaps really passionate about this topic they want to make sure the responsibility they have on their team their stewardship of that team and the humans on their team is compassionate and makes them well what are what are some things other than the one meeting a week what are some other things that that I could do as a leader today to create more psychological safety and, and well-being in my team? So I think if, if somebody is passionate about this and they want to make real change, I think a rising tide lifts all boats. So we should all get up on our soapbox and bang the drum about the importance of well-being. I think if, if, I, if this leader example in question Number one, to your point before, is, is speak to your people and understand what it is that they need, what it is that they want, and how they feel. And if your organization doesn't do that more broadly, you should feel empowered to do it within your team because their welfare is your primary responsibility. And if their welfare is, is good, their well-being is good, they're going to be happier, more energetic, and more productive. So it's within the best interests from a human nature perspective, but also from a business perspective. And I think as well... It, reflect on what you want from your leader Mm. and what you like about them, what you don't like about, or sorry, what you like about the way that they treat you or how they behave and, and, and what you do like and don't like, because there's going to be a lot of clues in there in terms of how they make you feel and therefore what rolls into your layer and how you make your people feel. Mm. And if you reflect upon that and ask yourself really truly what it is that you want from your manager, then you can become that manager yourself. Um, so I think it's, it's about listening. It's about understanding, but there are so many simple things, you know, 
there are so many wonderful books about there about how to be a better listener, how mm -hmm. to communicate better. Radical Candor, a wonderful mm -hmm. book by Kim Scott. There's, I just think there's so many resources out there. Just make sure you care enough to go out and find them to, to encourage yourself to be more compassionate, more empathetic, and put pressure on your organization to provide the support, tools, and education to do that. Yeah, and I, I would just add, I think, I, I worry about that middle layer of management because they are oftentimes um, the ones who are, you know, they're, to your point, they're role modeling from the, the top down. Mm. Um, and they're also having to build a, a team that's healthy and positive and productive. Um, but if their leader is not demonstrating those behaviors, it makes it really, really hard because now they're struggling with their mental health, mm. their feelings of psychological safety, and then they have to preach something down to their team, which they are personally really passionate and want to make happen, but the, the layers above them are not supporting it. So yeah. I, I mean, I've heard a lot of, um, so every year towards the end of the year, I work with, um, uh, I work with a team of IO psychologists to come on the podcast and tell us like the trends in employee experience and what's happening. And last year, um, the, the, exp the, the thought was that that middle layer of leaders are going to be burnt out and all the, all, uh, women leaders are going to start exiting the org organizations because they are, they're over it. <laughs> they're done. They're, they're, they're wanting more. Um, so I really worry. I think that's, we're going to see more people in that layer of leadership leaving organizations because they feel completely and utterly powerless to make the change. So I think, you know, this is the work that needs to happen. Uh, I think we need to be working at that executive level. Um, if you are working at an organization where you've delegated wellness to like a committee or one person to just do it, <laughs> make it happen, I think you're making a mistake because it really needs to be that executive team that is the stewards of that type of culture change or really matching our behaviors to those values. Perfectly said. I think it, it happens at all layers, right? As well as the executive support, you need that the yeah. army of champions that go out and advocate for well-being. You need to actually back your head of well-being. It's not just a tick box exercise window dressing. You know, mm -hmm. there's, yeah, it's a whole organization approach. It's not just an individual approach. Well, Matt, I could talk to you all day. Like we could like, I have so many other topics that uh, we could talk about. So I'm just going to end it there, but we'd love to have you back on the podcast at some point to delve deeper into some of these other topics around leadership, around, uh, you know, this idea of burnout um, and healthcare. I mean, there's so many different topics, but I just want to thank you. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and uh, your insights today and, and just spending time with us. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Angela. It was a, it was a pleasure and I appreciate you too. And I would love to come back on. Yay. Awesome. I will see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>